Lukute Sichis Chelek Tezayin, Parshas Shmeis Sicha Aleph. We're learning Lilu Nishmas, Rabbi Yisuf Binyamin, Ben Rabbi Nasha Kaltman. The book of Shmeis begins with a record of the descent of all of Jacob's family, of Yaakov's family, to Egypt, the beginning of the Egyptian exile. The Parsha records the names of the sons of Yaakov who descended together with their families and households. The Torah then records Yosef's passing and the passing of his generation, his brothers. The Torah then tells us that in Egypt, B'nai Yisrael, the children of Israel, the descendants of Yaakov, multiplied prolifically, becoming strong and filling the land. Pasuk Ches, verse 8 in the Parsha reads, Vayokom melechodosh, a new king arose, asher loyoda es Yosef, who didn't know Yosef. Rashi explains the verse and says, Rav v'shmul, Rav and Shmuel, Chad Omar chodosh mamash, v'chad Omar shenizchat shugzei Yosef. There's a disagreement between Rav and Shmuel. One says he was actually a new king, and the one says that it was his decrees that were new. The Gemara and Erevin, the source for Rashi's explanation, explains the value and necessity of each of these opinions. The one says, literally, man Omar chadosh mamash, a new king, because the Torah literally says, vayokam melech chadosh, a new king arose. And the one who said that his decrees were no, new derives his opinion from the fact that it's not written and a king died and his successor reigned as it's written elsewhere in the book of Bracious regarding the king of Edom. So despite the fact that Rashi explains only the literal intention of the verse, he brings both explanations because the verse points to both of these opinions in the literal wording, which helps us understand why when Rashi quotes the words Vayoka Melech and a new king, when in fact he is focusing on explaining the word Chodosh, the new aspect of this king. The word Vayokam necessitates the latter explanation of Shmuel and the word Melech, the former explanation of Rav. In truth, each one of these explanations is somewhat superior to the other in that each covers an issue that arises in the other. And yet, as often explained, the first explanation that Rashi brings is always closest to the literal intention of the verse. And so it, is here for, so it is here for several reasons. First, simply, it's logical to assume that with the word chodosh new, the intention is literally new, a new king, and not that because kings make decrees, what was new were his decrees. Also, according to the latter explanation, that he wasn't a new king, but he made new decrees, there is now a requirement to also explain, explain the words, Asher lo es Yosef, who didn't know Yosef, who pretended not to know Yosef's importance. As the Gemara explains and Rashi teaches, Ve asher lo 
who did not know, he pretended not to know. In fact, therefore, Rashi adds the letter Vav, the Vav HaChibor, the connecting Vav, to the words Asher lo yada es Yosef, who didn't know Yosef in his explanation, changing it to Ve'asher lo yada es Yosef from the way it's stated in the verse. And he didn't know Yosef, thus connecting the idea of the latter answer, the second answer, his decrees were new, as in, he made new decrees and pretended not to know Yosef and Yosef's importance in Egypt. And finally, the Torah does not serve to record the rise and fall of the Gentile kings. The Torah focuses on the outcome of these events as they affect our people and the suffering caused by the decrees these kings contrived. The second explanation of Shmuel, given in the Gemara, is said to be based on the fact that the Torah doesn't tell us a king died and a new one arose. But as said, the Torah does not place importance on these events, nor record them, only their outcomes. And so the first explanation remains closest to the literal intention of the words in the Pasuk, It's for this precise reason that Rashi highlights the names Rav and Shmuel, which is often discussed, which is often discussed, Rashi does, only when a given explanation is likely to arouse questions in the mind of a seasoned Torah student. The respective opinions are understood by virtue of who said them. So how do we see that in our discussion in this Rashi on Pasukhes? Well, let's first look at how the Gemara expresses the controversy. The Gemara first presents us with their names, Rav Ushmul, and then states, Chad Omar v'chad Omar. One said, in his opinion, and the other one said, in his opinion. The first opinion is clearly that of Rav and the second of Shmuel. The Gemara records various such disagreements on different psukim between Rav and Shmuel. And in the presentation of these controversies, in the format of Chad Omar, the Chad Omar, one can discern the method behind each one's opinion. Rav, who is first, gives importance to the word or words in the verse where he understands the answer to a question to lie. Shmuel, however, concludes based on the context of the psukim, which surround the word or words in question, even if his conclusion doesn't match seamlessly with the word or words in the verse. An example of this is where Rav and Shmuel disagree on the words in the verse in the portion of Vayeshev in Perak Lamites chapter 39, Pasuk Yeralef, verse 11, that discusses Yosef in the home of Petifar. The Pasuk tells us, Yosef came to the house to do his work. Rav and Shmuel disagree. And the Gemara says, Rav v'Shmuel, Chad Omar, Lasais Melachtoi Mamish, Vachadam Omar, Lasais Tzorchov Nichnas. One said to actually do his work, and one said 
to behave illicitly with Petifar's wife. So the first, Rav, who explains he actually came into work, explains according to the wording in the verse. But the ex- second explanation, V'chad Omar Shmuel, looking at the context of the verses and observing the words in the Pasuk, V'ein ish me'anshe habayis sham baboyis, that there were no people in the house, home on that day. And in the verses preceding this one, that we learn that Potiphar's wife repeatedly, daily, tried to seduce Yosef, Shmuel explains the words, la'asais melachtai, as la'asais tzorchav, that he came to sin with the wife of Potiphar. An additional example of the Rav and Shmuel answer dynamic can be found in the Gemara, discussing the verse in Megillus Esther, the words, may Haidu viad kush, that Ahasuerus reigned from Haidu, India, to Kush, Africa. The Gemara says, Rav Ushmuel, Chad Omar, Haidu b'seifa Eilam, v'kush b'seifa Eilam. India is a country at one end of the world, and Kush is a country at another end. So vast was Ahasuerus's reign. V'chad Omar, the Gemara continues, and one says, Shmuel, Haidu v'kush, Haidu and Kush are actually situated near each other. Just as Ahasuerus reigned with ease over these two adjacent countries or states, so he reigned from one end of the world to the other. So powerful was Ahasuerus's reign. That is what the Pasuk means with Mehoidu Viad Kush. Similarly, Rav and Shmuel have a machlaikis, a difference of opinion, on the size of the kingdom of Shloima as it is discussed in Sefer Malachim, with Rav explaining the reign of Shloima, Metiftach Viad Aza, as distance, and Shmuel explaining it as power. One, Rav, explains and highlights the word ad, mehaidu viad kush, until, as is, it's a huge distance from one end of the world to the other. But v'chad the other opinion of Shmuel, is based upon the context of the psukim surrounding this word ad. The Megillah follows these words, mehaidu viad kush, with the words, sheva v'esrim umeya medina, which essentially means rulership, over the entire discovered world. So there is a need to explain Mehaidu v'yad kush in context. The Megillah tells us directly that Ahasuerus's reign was so vast, he ruled Sheva v'esrim u'meya Medina. He ruled 127 countries. Hence the words Mehaidu v'yad kush can't just be about the vastness of his reign from one end of the world to the other. Because if these words mean that, then saying Sheva ve'esrim, Umeya Medina, understood as the entire discovered world from end to end, would simply be repetitious. So Mehaidu Kush must be about the might of his reign, the power of his reign. Further examples of disagreements between Rav and Shmuel brought in the Gemara 
predate our Pasuk in Chumash. In the portion of Lech Lecha, the Torah tells us, about events that occurred in the days of Amraphel, the king of Shinar, as they impacted Avraham. Rav Ushmul says the Gemara. One says, Had Omar, his name was Nimrod, and he is called Amraphel because he, Omar, commanded Avraham, he pulled to be cast into a fiery furnace. Vechad Omar, and one says, his name was actually Amraphel, but he was called Nimrod because he caused the entire world to rebel, Himrid, against God during his reign. Looking at the literal intention of the verses, we see that in Parsha's Noyach, the Parsha preceding Lech Lecha, in, that precedes Lech Lecha, we see in that Parsha that Cush fathered Nimrod. And as a name, it's not necessary to seek out a reason for his name. It's only when we come across the name Amraphel, used in reference to who we know to be Nimrod, we need to say that the usage of a different name has significance. And so Chad Omar, why is he called Amraphel? Because he decreed Avraham to be thrown into a fiery furnace. But when you broaden that scope and view the context of the verses, as does Shmuel, what we observe is that immediately after we are told in Parshas Nayach that Cush fathered Nimrod, the Torah continues with a description of Nimrod as one who rebelled against God, who hechaliyah is gibor ba'aretz. He acted out in rebellion before God. And so v'chad Omar, one Shmuel now says, that the lengthy description of what Nimrod was like explains why he was called Nimrod. He was rebellious and caused others to rebel against God. So when the verse in Lech Lecha refers to Nimrod as Amraphel, without any sort of description, in other words, no explanation for the name, the conclusion is made that his name is actually Amraphel. The other earlier disagreement between Rav and Shmuel is found in Parshas Chayisara, when Avraham seeks to acquire the Ma'ara Samachpelah. On this verse, the Gemara says, Ma'ara Samachpelah, Rav Shmuel. The Ma'ara Samachpelah, Chadomar, Shnei Batim Zelifnim Mizeh. It was a double cave with a cave one within another. And Shmuel says, it was the Chadomar, Bayis Va'aliyah Al Gabov, a double storied cave, one story above another. The Gemara continues and says, if one understands it as a cave above a cave, what makes it kuffle, doubled? But if you learn it as one cave within another, then the name Ma'ora Samachpela is understood as Kfula Bezugais. It's doubled in the pairs that are buried there. Once again, in this example, we can see the method of Rav and Shmuel used to express their opinions. The words Ma'ara Samachpela, the cave of doubles, tells us it's a singular cave containing doubles. Ma'arat Hamachpela. So it suits our understanding of a cave within which couples lie buried. Certainly, this is clearer and truer to the words Ma'ara Samachpela 
than the idea of a cave above another, like two caves, which in terms of a cave wouldn't be like one floor above another in a house, as one cave would be in the ground and one above ground. Hence, Rav's explanation as a cave within which there is another where couples lie buried. But again, broadening that scope to include the surrounding verses, it's difficult to explain it as Rav sees it, because Avraham, in fact, requests of Bnei Ches, prostrating himself before them, he says, if it's your will that I bury my dead, Likbar es Macy, in the singular, referring to his wife Sarah only from before me, to relieve me of my deep anguish, ask Ephron to give me the Ma'ara Samach Pela, the double cave that belongs to him and is at the end of his field. Avram certainly isn't at this point asking for eight burial plots. And so Shmuel explains this doubled cave as a double storied cave. Accordingly, looking now at our discussion, on Vayoka Melachadash, and a new king arose in verse 8 in Pasukhes, we can understand why the verses are placed in the order as they are. Pasuk Zion, verse 7, tells us that Bnei Yisrael were very fruitful and swarmed and increased, becoming very strong and filling the land. Pasukhes tells us that a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Yosef. And Pasuk Tes, verse 9, tells us that he turns to his nation and says, look at the children of Israel. There are more of them than us, and they're stronger than us. The practical placement of the verses would have been when immediately following, following the Pasuk that says that Bnei Israel grew prolifically, the next verse should have told us that the king points this out to his nation and begins plotting against Am Yisrael. The significance of this being a new king is lost on us. But that verse, Vayakamela Chadash, in fact, is placed in Torah to awaken us to a really surprising and puzzling thing. How could Pari possibly decree evil decrees upon Yosef's nation and family after the incredible kindness Yosef did for the land of Egypt. So to settle this surprising turn of events, the Torah tells us, a new king arose over Egypt, who did not know Yosef. And in explaining these words, Rashi tells us that the two explanations are from Rav and Shmuel, so we better understand the difference in the explanations, each according to their method. One, according to his method, explains the words, A new king arose over Egypt who did not know Yosef as simply the arrival of a new king who did not know Yosef. So he made unusual and cruel decrees as he was not beholden to Yosef. But the content of the verses makes this challenging to understand. He certainly heard of Yosef, who had saved the entire former generation in Egypt, and particularly when he involves the populace. As the Pasuk tells us, 
He said to his nation, they've grown stronger than us. Let's plot against them. There must have been people among them who were literally saved from death by Yosef. So there is a need to explain Asher Loyoda, who did not know Yosef as one who made it as if he didn't know him. Therefore, looking at the Psukim in broader scope, Shmuel, the Vachad Omar, reflects on the coming cruelty of Pari and says, though the verse says he was a new king, the Torah is in fact telling us of his incredible cruelty and in his, of his pretense in not knowing Yosef, it was his decrees that were new. Understanding this here in Shmais also facilitates our understanding of Arashi back in Bracious, in the Torah portion of Vayera, where Rashi explains a verse in the name of Rav and Shmuel specifically, even though other commentaries and even the Talmud quotes the explanation in the names of other sages. In Vayera, in chapter 21, Perakhofalaf, Pasuklamit Gimel, verse 33, the Torah teaches, Vayita Eshel Be'er Sheva. Avraham living in Be'er Sheva planted an Eshel. Rashi explains the Eshel saying, Rav Ushmuel. Chad Omar, Pardes, Lehevi Mimene Peres. There is a dispute between Rav and Shmuel. One says, it's an orchard from which to bring fruits, lo orchim to guess. Vechad Omar, pundak lachsanya, uboi kol mine peris. Eishel is an inn for lodgers, where one could enjoy many fruits and many types of foods. And Rashi concludes, this term vayita, to plant, is in fact used elsewhere in reference to pitching a tent. Certainly, the simple implication of the words Vayita Eishel is a fruit orchard, as is the methodology of explanation of Chad Omar Rav. But Vichad Omar, in the methodology of Shmuel, according to the context of the verse itself, Vayita Eishel Be'er Sheva, Avram planted an Eishel in Be'er Sheva, Vayikra B'Shem Hashem Kel Olam, and there he called in the name of God, in the name of Hashem, God of the world. And as is actually explained in the latter Rashi, that it was by means of that Eshel that the name of HaKadosh Baruch Hu is called, was called Kel Elam. It's far more likely to say that we aren't talking about a fruit tree or a fruit orchard, but about a lodger's inn where Avraham hosted people for a while and they ate there, as the Medrash says, all kinds of food. And he awakened the travelers, now satiated and fed, to bless God for all this good repast. And this is Shmuel's explanation, even while this doesn't completely integrate with the word Vayita. And he planted, and another source for usage of the word Vayita, as erecting a tent, has to be provided to support the explanation. So we have a very good foundation now in understanding the method in Gemara and Medrash of the explanations of Rav and Shmuel. But it's difficult to accept this as the reason Rashi highlights their names, Rav and Shmuel, so we understand 
in our pasuk, so we understand the different approaches and methods, because in fact, Rashi doesn't always tell us when he quotes the explanations of Rav and Shmuel that he is quoting Rav or and Shmuel. If this was Rashi's reason for explaining the verse, quoting Rav and Shmuel by name, that this tells us the difference in their approach, Rashi would likely always mention them when bringing an explanation of one or the other so we could better understand the explanation. In fact, we find that only in some of the formally mentioned examples of Rav and Shmuel's differing opinions on Torah, does Rashi mention Rav and Shmuel, Chad Omar v'chad Omar. Rashi does so in the explanation on the Pasuk and Vayeshev regarding Yosef. Vayovay habaisa lasais melachtai. Yosef came to the house to do his work and in our Parsha. But not always does Rashi give the names, bring the names Rav and Shmuel. In Parshas Nayach, regarding Nimrod, when Rashi explains the words, that Nimrod began to become a mighty man after telling us of his birth as to cause the entire world to rebel against the Holy One with a plan and for the purpose of causing a Dor HaFlaga, the generation of division, the explanation isn't clearly on the words Rashi highlights to explain. Leah's Gibor. Rashi explains mighty as rebellious, really explaining his name Nimrod. There, further on in Parshas Lech Lecha, in explaining Amraphel, Rashi says he was Nimrod, who condemned Avram to be pushed into the fire. In other words, his name was Nimrod. Rashi does not, in these explanations, indicate this was said by Rav and this by Shmuel. And on his explanation regarding the Ma'aras HaMachpelah, Rashi brings the two opinions of Rav and Shmuel in succession with the Dover Acher and another thing, another thing between the explanations, but doesn't tell us that these are the explanations of Rav and Shmuel. Rashi doesn't say Ravu Shmuel Chad Omar Vechad Omar. And in his explanation on Megillah again, Rashi quotes the explanation of the words Mehoidu Viad Kush only from Vechad Omar Shmuel and does not tell us that it was Shmuel, which tells us that we must conclude that when Rashi does mention the names Rav and Shmuel, he doesn't do so to show us how each goes according to his own method. Rashi does so in specific cases to show us that their individual methods are relevant to understanding the explanation that Rashi brings us or to help satisfy a question that may be asked specifically by a seasoned scholar on the specific verse. In our Pasuk, Rashi quotes Ravu Shmuel, because Vayaka Melechadosh seems to be necessary so we understand the evil of Pari in his gathering the people of Egypt and involve their involvement in the nefarious and wicked plans against B'nai Yisrael. Factually, even if he is literally a new king, 
it's impossible to suggest that the purpose of the words Loyota es Yosef, he didn't know Yosef means, he never heard of him, and now, and how he saved the entire land. Even a five-year-old Torah student understands that this fear of pares, that a prolifically growing nation is no basis for assuming that this means they will go to war with Egypt. It's just not the nature of man to return a kindness with evil. And Egypt sustained Bnei Yisrael in a hunger. And Bnei Yisrael lived a good life there. We learned this idea in Torah and Parshas Vayera, when Avraham showed such gratitude to Avimelech, who performed a kindness with him in saying, Hine artsi lefanecha, here is my land before you. And Avraham swore to him that not only would Avraham show kindness to him, to Avimelech, but to all his descendants. The Jews knew of the kindness Pare had performed for them, taking Yosef out of prison, placing him in the position of viceroy of Egypt with power over everything and all, and then, according to Pari's instruction, settling the Bnei Yaakov and their families and the best, in the best and most desirable part of Egypt in Galatian. Certainly, Pari and his people understood that these people, even a generation later, weren't about to turn on them. Clearly, Pari's fear mongering, and the decrees that followed were just pure evil. The question that arises, however, in the given fact of Pari's wickedness is whether it was focused on God or focused on the people. Bein Adam l'makim or bein Adam l'chaveri. And this is what's addressed in letting us know that this explanation is a disagreement between Rav and Shmuel. To explain, the Gemara in Brachas, a section, excuse me, the Gemara in Bechiris, in, in portion Mem, in portion 40, a section of Kodshim that discusses the halacha of firstborn states, wherever Rav and Shmuel disagree, the halacha is in accordance with the opinion of Rav in ritual matters, what is and isn't permitted, and in the opinion of Shmuel in monetary matters, and Rishonim explain why. Though Rav, too, gave halachic opinions on mamonis, on monetary matters, and Shmuel, too, gave halachic opinions on Isor and Heter, prohibited and permitted laws. It was, however, standard for Shmuel to determine monetary laws, and so he looked really deeply exploring every aspect of Dinin, and he was depended on for these halachas. And it was standard for Rav to determine halacha in regards to permitted and forbidden issues, and so he was depended on for this. The difference between these two types of laws, Heter and Isur, and Mamaina, is that the laws of Heter and Isur are between man and God. The laws of finance are between Adam Lamakim, between man and his fellow, Adam Lachaveri. Each one of them 
repeating that. My apologies. The laws of Heter and Iser are between man and God, Bain Adam Lamakim, and the laws of finance relevant to man and his fellow Adam Lachavere. Each one of the, them was then accustomed to seeing the halacha from a particular vantage point, from a particular perspective. Rav, Bain Adam Lamakim, Shmuel, Bain Adam Lachavere. Looking at Melachodosh, a new king arose. According to the explanation that he was not a new king, he was behaving in an evil way. It's not an evil that is manifesting in the mad man-god realm. As Yaakov had given Pare great honor when he arrived in Egypt and blessed Pare when leaving his presence, treating him like a king and accepting Pare's rule, thus Pare had the divine right, according to his understanding, to rule as he willed. But between man and man, in terms of his relationship with Yasef, particularly, who was truly a friend, who did so much for Pare, this evil has no excuse in his rationalization of his divine right. With the explanation, however, of Melech Chodosh, Chodosh Mamash, actually a new king, one who Yaakov showed no honor to because he never knew him and whose rule had not been accepted by the family of Yaakov when they descended to Egypt. He became king when the Jews were already there. He has no divine right over them and as evil as an act against God, less so an act of evil against the people because if he is a new king, Yasef never did anything for him personally. It is bin Adam Lamakim. Accordingly, we understand, Rav explains Pare's wickedness according to his deep understanding of bin Adam Lamakim. And so he says this was a new Pare, and his sin was against God. And Shmuel says this was an old Pare, the Pare who Yosef had done so much for, and it was a sin against man. Now we understand why Rashi quotes the explanation the explanations in their names, in the other examples as well. In the portion of Yeshev, we learn about Yeshev's righteousness, so much so that the Torah tells us Paitifar entrusted everything to him. We learn that Paitifar's wife tried to seduce Yeshev daily, and he refused her. And the Torah tells us that Yeshev escaped Paitifar's wife's advances. So when the the Pasuk says that Yasef came to do his work. The disagreement is whether he came to actually do his job or did he come to engage in an illicit relationship. Rav, who explains halacha between man and God, says he came to work, mamush, because the latter explanation would indicate a sin against God. According to Shmuel, though, who sees the action as relevant to Ben Adam Lachaveri, because Yasef made sure to come when no one was around, as the Pasuk tells us, there was no man home, no one was home in that house, and he could avoid hurting his relationship with Paitifar, explains that this was about Yosef coming to sin, to take care of his needs. Regarding 
the Eishel discussed in Vayera, which is specific, which Rashi specifically brings an explanation in the names of Rav and Shmuel. Rashi says Eishel, Rav Ushmuel. One says it's an orchard to bring fruits to guests, and one says an inn for guests to lodge at with all kinds of food. We understand that an inn is a great, far greater kindness than a fruit orchard. And this is understandable according to Shmuel's position. On the other hand, in the explanation of an orchard, the Bein Adam Lamakim is more pronounced because Avraham is likely bringing with this Eishel, as did Kayin, a gift of produce to Hashem. Hence, Rashi specifically teaches these explanations not in the name of Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Nechemia, as the Gemara teaches them, but as Rav and Shmuel, so we can further and better understand the explanations on Eishel. Our lesson in this Rashi for our time is, there are those who argue that we've got friends in high places, new friends, old friends, and if God forbid some law comes out, we shouldn't panic, we should just go along with it, even if it's not in line with Torah, even if it means serving Pare and building Pisaim and Ramses, instead of spending our time correctly, learning Torah with effort and calm, and even if we can't be fulfilling mitzvahs properly, and really living, knowing God in all our ways, we need to capitulate to the king. We must know then, it makes no difference if it's a new king or an old king, who's been around. He's a king of Egypt, of Mitzrayim, who by nature oppresses the Jews, and his kindness is pure sin. Chesed lo'umim chatos. The call of the hour is to behave like the Jewish mialdes, the midwives of Egypt, who turned Pare's decree of casting the male children into the river and letting the Jewish girl babies live whose true desire was to cast the males into idol worship, for the Nile was the idol of Egypt. It was ultimately their source of money, until they are drowned in it, not only in body, but also in soul. And let the girls live, Pari's intention, was make them live Egyptian lives, with Egyptian desires. The Mialdais turned those into ensuring that the Jewish babies lived and were educated, as essential Jews. What must be done naturally by natural means is to talk to the Gentiles, as Moshe did with Parai. He honored him as appropriate, but he did it holding God's divine staff in his hand, holding the position of a strong Jew who doesn't bow to the Goy and certainly doesn't hide his Jewishness. And ultimately, when you don't make too much of and don't consider too heavily the Xeris Hamadina, the decrees of the land, which aren't aligned with Judaism, and instead you devote yourself completely to the education of Jewish children, all Jewish children, establishing at Tzivis Hashem, healthy Jews both physically and spiritually result. And you bring redemption, true redemption, to all of Israel with Mashiach Tzidkenu Bikarev Mamash.